an object of curiosity and irony, an off-color genealogical punchline. We didn't take him seriously, just as in the years to come, we wouldn't take Mac, his bluster, his fame, or his literary accomplishments, entirely seriously. When we were young, he was simply Grandpa. Once each winter, my parents, my brother Michael, my sister Susan, and I, would board a train at Pennsylvania Station in New York City and make the overnight trip down the East Coast and through the swampy wilds of Central Florida to Sarasota on the state's southwest Gulf Coast, where we would be met by Mac and my grandmother Irene Lane, a petite woman with dyed blonde hair, who was a fairly accomplished amateur painter and still daintily pretty well into her fifties. They would pull into the gritty small-town train station in a late-model canary-yellow Lincoln Continental. Grandma, dressed in pastels, would enfold me in a hug smelling of gardenias, oil paints, and the little cigarillos she smoked, and kiss the top of my head, while Max stood back, puffing on his pipe. When the cuddling was out of the way, He'd stick out his chest and offer a firm handshake, man to man. We'd load the luggage into the trunk, and Mac would whisk us off to Siesta Key and the rambling beach house he'd built in 1936 with the proceeds from his first big literary success. As he drove, he took long sips from the cocktail glass parked in the custom-made cup holder he'd had installed on the dashboard. This was long before the days when such things came standard. The house, built with termite-proof pecky cypress lumber and a pair of coquina rock fireplaces, was hidden down a long shell driveway on three acres of beachfront jungle. We'd park in the carport, and my sister-brother and I would burst from the back seat and race through the open, airy house out of the sliding glass doors, through the screen patio, across the palm-studded lawn of prickly Bermuda grass, and straight down to the beach. We'd toss off our city shoes and splash into the gentle swells rolling from the Gulf of Mexico into Big Pass, as Mac mixed drinks for the adults. Most days after that he spent in his study, with the door closed, and woe be to any child or canine, of which there were always one or two, whose boisterous vocalizations disturbed him. But when the study door just off the living room opened at precisely 5 p.m. cocktail hour, we were free to explore the big room with its book-lined walls and eclectic museum of mementos. The very atmosphere altered when we entered. The air seemed stiller somehow, infused with an intoxicating bouquet of pipe tobacco, sea salt, seasoned wood, and the musty aroma given off by hundreds of book bindings slowly decaying in the unconditioned Florida humidity. Hanging above the volume-crammed shelves and on every bare wall was a boy's life fantasy of artifacts. Black and white photos of bombing runs taken from the bomb site of a B-17, the impact of the bombs evident in a trail of tiny black mushrooms erupting from the distant surface. Rough-and-tumble group shots of loose pilots lounging before sheet metal hangars 
the men of the bomber groups he flew with in World War II and Korea, framed Saturday evening post-covers featuring his short stories. A photo of the bronze plaque containing a poem he'd written embedded in a wall on the 86th floor observation deck of the Empire State Building. Nazi spoils of war, including German helmets, a dummy potato masher, uniform insignia, and most intriguing, a bullwhip. Original prints of Civil War battle scenes, a red, white, and blue sign that said, Fuck Communism, and a scale model of a B-52 jet bomber perched atop a metal stand, which I coveted most of all. His mahogany desk backed up to a picture window overlooking the deep green lawn, which was studded with palms draped in long winks of soft.